This is the 966 episode 106. Hello, Mr. Richard Wilson. How are you? Hey, you know, you should say reporting live from the Jeddah Marriott. Reporting live from Jeddah (laughs) Uh, with a raspy voice and an average of three and a half hours of sleep. Uh, with four flights <laughs> in the last seven days and seven more in the next four days, um, and and two and two nights in Munich preceding it during Oktoberfest. I mean, indeed, and a night in Geneva a, on the, the back end here. Yeah, so yep, going back through yeah, Europe. <laughs> you're 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 running on fumes. We'll try, you know, but it's a good effort. It's a great effort. Oh, well, thank you. And nice to see you. I usually see you from the same area as you, at least. And um, either you're here and I'm there or I'm there, you're here. And so, yeah, it's nice to see you. <laughs> Familiar face. Always we, do have a, we do have a very cool and good episode this week. We're going to be speaking shortly with Dr. Robert Mogulnicki from the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. We're going to talk about the public investment fund and its evolving and growing mandate and its importance for the Saudi economy. It's a great discussion. Robert knows what he's talking about. He's often, as we say in the segment, a go-to quote for newspapers uh, and media outlets around the world. So uh, just kind of edifying for us, Richard, and and I think everybody's going to love this. Absolutely. We've been trying, we've been angling at a PIF episode for some time because it's a fascination and because it, it infuses everything we do in terms of Saudi Arabia and and Robert was the guy. Robert is the guy, you know, in terms of uh, you know analysis and political economy and and how. So this is a really good conversation. I loved it and I was really looking forward to it. So my expectations were really high and it it met the expectations for sure. Yeah, I mean, outside of somebody from the PIF actually talking about it directly with us, and even then they wouldn't be able to share much. So we right. ended up. Uh, in the green on that. Um, We will be talking a little bit about the upcoming FII, the seventh FII as well, and um, some more football as well for the the football fans out there. Um, Before we get started, just wanted to read uh, some feedback, which has been coming in, uh, as it always does midweek, right after the episode, we try to kind of corral it a little bit. This is a comment on, Richard, your one big thing last week, on crypto and um, Web3 in the Middle East. Uh, This is from at Duck Creek Life. It's a cool name. Coming from a traditional Islamic finance background in Saudi Europe and the US and pairing that with the gains in Sharia, understanding and compliance with certain crypto assets, it is a good indication for me as to why growth is coming out of Saudi. Assuming that a good number of these traders are using the Sharia compliant GCC crypto exchanges, it may not be long before an investment firm in Riyadh tries to get a Saudi Riyadh dominated crypto fund approved by the CMA. Yeah. Fascinating. Maybe. Yeah. Well, thank you, Duck Creek, like for Duck Creek Life for that uh, insight. That's uh, very good. Richard, one more as well. I want to read. Um, this is from Nasser Alzir 9935. MBS is one of the most important leaders in the world, but what makes him even better is he is only nearly 40 years old, which makes him keep up with the times and his movement is faster than the older leaders of older generations. Um, yeah, uh, just anecdotally, uh, on the ground here in Saudi Arabia, everybody's talking about that interview um, that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman did with Fox. Our segment on that interview, discussing it and reacting it, 
reacting to it. And it was sort of a hot take segment because it happened just after the conversation that His Royal Highness had with Brett Beyer. Um, did very well on uh, various channels. So uh, people are talking up. about it. And we think he did a great job. It blew up. That was a good one. And I, I, those, it's nice. These, the, the, the readers, the viewers, listeners, comments are awesome. And it's really impressive when you have people who are that uh, expert on something who are tuning in. Indeed. You know, the crypto, our, our, our duck lake or whatever, duck life. Um, duck Creek and, life. Yeah. Duck Creek life. <laughs> Making me miss home a little bit. Yeah. With the username. Exactly. Um, I also apologize to the listeners and viewers. I didn't bring my microphone this time. Didn't want to check a bag with all of these short flights uh, on this trip. And so I'm just using my dome phones and the computer. And I'm, as Richard mentioned, I'm in Jeddah and the street noise may be a factor today. (laughs) What did you call it before the show, Richard? Uh, Local (laughs) ambiance. Local ambiance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You know, celebrate a flaw. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Okay. Richard, let's get going. Well, you thank sound you. Good. Thank you. But don't comment on my looks because it's been a it's been a day. <laughs> uh, let's get going. What's your one big thing this week, Richard? Uh, this Wednesday, um, the Federation Internationale de Football Association, commonly known as FIFA, opened bidding uh, for the 2034 Men's World Cup. As we know, that's a global event of huge consequence. Uh, FIFA announced that bidders must confirm interest by this October 31st and that the 2034 World Cup would be allocated to a country from Asia or Oceania. Um, Saudi Arabia <laughs> did not dawdle. They had their they submitted this intention to bid almost immediately. It went in Thursday. Um, full bids must be submitted by July 2024 next year with FIFA's decision coming later next year. Saudi Minister of Sport, Prince Abdulaziz bin Turkey Al-Faisal said, quote, hosting a FIFA World Cup in 2034 would help us achieve our dream of becoming a leading nation in world sport and would mark a significant milestone in the country's transformation. As an emerging and welcoming home for all sports, we believe that hosting a FIFA World Cup is a natural next step in our football journey, unquote. Also added um, that according to to the minister, Saudi Arabia's inaugural FIFA World Cup bid is backed by the country's growing experience of hosting world football events and its ongoing plans to welcome fans across the world to the 2023 FIFA World Club World Cup and the 2027 AFC Asian Cup, unquote. Um, and an interesting bit of news that came out sort of simultaneously with the announcement that bids, you know, intention to bid is open on the part of FIFA, um, the Asian Football Confederation, which is the AFC, the the over the the overseeing, you know, the preeminent football confederation for Asia, says it will quote stand united in support of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia's momentous initiative. We are committed to working closely with the global football family to ensure success. Uh, we strongly believe it paves the way for a more equitable opportunity for all confederations to bid for and host the prestigious FIFA World Cup, the pinnacle of world's men's football. So this is, uh, you know, this is quite an endorsement of the Saudi bid, and it's a little discouraging for other countries that are thinking about Australia in particular, as we know they just hosted the 2030, 2023 Women's World Cup along with New Zealand. So, um, so you know, promising and so the right before they announced 
they sought bids for the 2034. They announced that the 2030 World Cup would be hosted by Morocco, Spain, and Portugal. Lucian, you remember there was some discussion uh, and planning that Saudi Arabia would throw in for the 2030 World Cup with Egypt and Greece. Clearly, you know, discussion was had and and assessments were made and they thought, you know, is better. They're going to go all in, you know, alone on the 2034. And it looks like they have initial buy-in, at least from the AFC. Um, and as all football knows, so you've got the 2034 Saudi Arabia is bidding for, you got the 2030, um, that's uh, Morocco, Spain, and Portugal. And of course, 2026 FIFA World Cup comes to North America with most of the games in the USA, but games in Canada and Mexico. Um, exciting times. I like this a lot. I think it's great. Uh, it, it reflects well on Saudi Arabia in, 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 in a couple of ways, I think. One, it's it's constantly, obviously, throwing it. It would be a prestigious event. Um, they clearly you know, read the tea leaves and adjusted. You know, they love the 2030 because it's associated with so much that goes on with Saudi Arabia at the moment and, and everything all about their marketing. But adjusting to 2034 is not a problem. You know, their homegrown league should be even more developed. Uh, they'll be farther along in, in every aspect. Um, so it's a, it's an exciting thing. And, and hopefully Saudi Arabia will, you know, this will be a successful bid for them. I also like it, to be honest, Lucian, and we've talked about this in other contexts. I like it when a marker is beyond 2030 because so much of, you know, Saudi Arabia right now is identified with Vision 2030. And it's as if, you know, on January 31st, 2030, a grade will be given. You know, how'd you do on your Vision 2030 when it has nothing to do with that? There's all sorts of things coming after Vision 2030. Vision 2030 was just a guideline. Um, so when you talk about Vision 2034, it implies it will explicitly states that, you know, this is an ongoing thing. Um, the Saudi experiment and what they're trying to do in terms of remaking their country. So uh, it'd be exciting to watch how this goes. Is there anything available on anybody else that has submitted a bid that, uh, that is not Saudi Arabia? Um, Australia, like I said, that was an interesting thing because um, I think there's expectation that Australia would be doing it because they put in for the 2022 men's world cup the qatar one um and you know so now there's an ongoing debate there's immediate debate in australia now says okay uh you know we spent x number of millions i think something like better than 50 million dollars on that bid for the 2022 olympics we just got this comment from the afc that says they really like the saudi bid for the 2034 you know, do we want to spend our money to go on a lost cause? So you, you've immediately got a, a sort of a brouhaha and a dilemma and a conversation, a global, I mean, a, a national conversation in Australia about should they throw in for the 2034? So we'll see. You know, we don't know yet. It is an interesting setup because you have to, you know, what, you know, the, the, the announcement that a bid should be in was made on October 4th, but the bid has to be in on October 31. So you have a very close window to decide you want to do it as a country. But the official bids don't come till next July, you know, so you'd have all this work that you'd be doing in terms of filling out the bid and, and that sort of thing. So it's interesting. You have to make a political decision quickly. And then the substantive administrative application and so on and so forth would come after that. So Australia has a decision to make fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be a little biased on this, but it just seems like a ton of momentum is on 
Saudi Arabia side, you have the Saudi Pro League taking off. Some of the biggest names in the world are here now. You have um, investments in sport in general. Um, you know, the Saudi economy this year is probably going to slow down compared to its red hot year last year, but it was one of the fastest growing, the fastest growing economy in the G20. And what I just, the reason why I make these points is because the, the wording in this statement from Saudi Arabia sort of had this, um, and they say it directly, so it, it didn't even imply it. It said, we're maturing as a sports destination. We're maturing as a, as a destination that can host big events, not just big sporting events, but as a tourist destination, as a sporting destination, um, as an events destination, at a conference destination, tourism numbers are being revised upward and, and goals, I mean, are being revised upward to 150 million by 2030 because they're doing really well on tourism. It's like they're saying, this is our moment now and we're, we're ready for it. And, you know, I mean, so you just said Australia, there will be other competitors, I'm sure, that that put their name in. It sort of seems just like on the face of it, again, probably a little bias in Saudi Arabia right now. And also just we're doing a podcast on Saudi Arabia, but they have momentum on this and um, I'm rooting for it, too. I mean, that would be really cool. Um, Richard, of course, we would have to go. Um, there's would be no option. We yeah, definitely absolutely. have to go. Um, we are I mean, talking you know, about many- a decade from now. So, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> exactly. But how many, you know, so many of our Saudi friends are just in the true form of the word fanatics. They love their football. It, they would be over the moon about this on their on the in their country, just over the moon. And I think it's, you know, Saudi, as we've talked about, Saudi Arabia is obviously is is expanding its sports portfolio internationally, domestically at, at an extraordinary pace. They're becoming a convening, hosting, you know, a giant. Uh, and, you know, to do the 2034 FIFA would be like the singularity between these two of sports and convening, you know, for sports and hosting, you know, a, a, ge- a geographically inclusive event. It would be amazing for them. I also think, and nothing's a fix, you don't know, but I, I got to think they, they engendered some goodwill in working with FIFA and other countries and saying, okay, we'll just back off on the 2030. Please give us consideration for 2034. Is has there been a decision yet on the Expo twenty thirty? That that should no, be that's coming next, up. That's next month. Next. Okay, month. so that should be coming up, and that would be cool if they were to get that. That would definitely lay the groundwork four years ahead of this. Um, and so we'll obviously stay on top of that. I was really worried that I may have missed it, um, but yeah, I mean this <laughs> no, we, this is a we, good we, one because that would be a yeah. big thing. You know, it just it also makes me think of Qatar and how well they did with uh, their organization of the World Cup and how many naysayers and doubters beforehand, you know, oh, they're not going to serve alcohol at the games. You know, they're, they're using um, allegedly using, you know, uh, illegal labor to build a lot of these things. I mean, like the, the run up was not good. It didn't look good. It was shaping up to be one of these, you know, oh, we saw it coming. We saw the disaster train coming. We didn't get out of the way. And it was actually, and we talked about it on the show, amazing, an amazing World Cup with thrilling games. Everything went off pretty much without a hitch. And kudos to them. It, I don't want to say it showed that it can be done in the Arab world, but, you know, it, a lot of people doubted that you could do it in a place that is this hot. <laughs> and it was done. And, but, and if Qatar can do it, and, Saudi's going to say we can do it. 
Absolutely. And, and, you know, coincidentally, I mean, the, the Emirates hosted the Expo, World Expo, and did that well. Mm-hmm. And you, Saudi Arabia, obviously, looking at it mostly both for prestige, but both those cases were, I, I don't know if, you know, the amount of money that Qatar invested in terms of infrastructure and that sort of thing, you may, you, you know, you're not going to get that money back just in the event. But both of them had significant revenue streams with significant PR bounces and you know it, it it's all to the good if Saudi can end up you know hosting these if they can do you know the Expo 2030 and then the FIFA 2034 wow yeah and Saudi Arabia has a pro league you know that will see some spillover benefits to this Qatar did not really um, they don't really not in the same way so you know maybe our Alfea Orange. Richard Orange. will get some gussying up of their stadium, and perhaps that would end up being one of the destinations. Wouldn't that be great? That'd be just the shot of life that uh, the Alfea FC needs. Um, so that'd be cool. Exactly. And you know, this was just kind of, this was a football-related one big thing, but we'll probably do to get back to a a you know a uh, the Saudi professional league because it's off to a roaring start, and a lot of the new transfers, you know, the the bright shiny toys are kicking butt they're doing well so it's 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 uh it's a bouncing along league and it's gonna be we'll we'll come back to it at some point because it's a lot of fun it is a lot of fun it's a lot of fun to talk about and people love talking about it so we're gonna keep doing it and i love it and and uh richard you've done a really good job at actually getting really into it getting down below the surface level getting into the granular stuff and so for me that's super convenient because uh it's always best and easiest (laughs) when you get it we may be ready for yeah, exactly. We may be ready for another another edition of, you know, stupid Americans trying to understand football. Trying to figure it out. That's right. And uh, speaking yeah. of uh, stupid updates, I'm going to do a live traffic update here. And traffic seems to be improving here in Jeddah on uh, Al Medina Road. <laughs> um, and it's funny because the way that I'm sitting right now, it's like in my like, you know, peripheral vision. So I can tell by looking at my computer how it's doing because it's just, and I'm like, "Hmm, what's going on here? And I keep looking over. So anyway. uh, Well, give the the report. It's just just short of 9 p.m. there, right? It's just short of 9 p.m., yes. And it is still pretty bad, I have to say. I know this is a main road, (laughs) but it's 9 (laughs) o'clock. Now, it is like the Friday night in Saudi. So it's, you know, uh, people are going around, I guess, to dinner or whatever. but yeah, um, it was looking good a second ago, and now it looks like it's slowing down again. So uh, traffic Actually, report rescinded. Speaking of transportation, we were we were chatting. I don't know if it was WhatsApp or text, whatever we were doing. We were yapping away. Oh and yeah, you have some yeah. information to share. Yes, well, I, I don't um, want to so steal your thunder. I I can't believe I didn't mention this in the, in the intro, but yes, I met Richard's friend Isa, the uh, driver that um, works for Al Salem Johnson Controls and Dr. Mohammed Al-Sheikh. And he remembered Richard. I, s- I had to translate uh, because, you know, first of all, I talk a he little fast speak and, English. and his English. Yeah, well, that's okay. But so I translated it in, uh, in Google Translate and I wrote my dear friend Richard. And then I had a picture of you from the internet that I pulled up, um, you know, from like 10 years ago, <laughs> by the way. So it took him Did a second my shirt to kind of recognize you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and I was like, my dear friend, Richard has, um, bought, um, two Al Itahad shirts for his children. And you, you said, make sure you tell him. And I said, okay, I'm going to tell him exactly that. And I, 
and I, and he's driving, right? He's driving down whatever highway connects Jetta to Kaust. And, you know, I'm holding the laptop up to his, like, face as he's driving. And he's looking at it going, oh, and he starts freaking out. And he's so pumped. He's so excited. And then I tell him, um, you know, I, I take the computer back and I write into it and I say, but I am an Alphia fan. And if you want to join me in my fandom, you know, feel free. And then he made, he read it and then make a joke like, hey, if you want to walk the rest of the way, you know, you can get out right now. <laughs> <laughs> but nicest guy in the world. Now I know uh, where the hype comes from. Just uh, really a, a great person and a huge Ali Tahad fan, no doubt. Truly. East has, East has been on this show twice now and never listened to it for sure. But this is, I guess, that isn't even, and Lucian, that's very nice of you to, to share that. That isn't even what I was referring to. I was referring to another form of transportation where you enjoyed a first. And uh, Uber. Oh, okay. So we do have two transportation stories. Yes, I did have a fir- my first female Uber driver here and honestly, 1,000 Uber rides in you know, the last 15 months or whatever it's been. Um, getting picked up from the Jeddah airport, a female driver picked me up, said hello in English, which was very nice. You didn't have to do that. But uh, yeah, um, uh, driving a Chinese, there's like a Chinese SUV that's here that's not in the US. It's called like Geely yeah. or something like that. You see them all over it's the place. It's a Geely, yeah. It's pretty nice, actually. Yeah. I don't want to give the Chinese any credit or any more than they deserve, but um, it's pretty well, nice. But she was super friendly. I was so tired, so I wasn't terribly friendly back, uh, but she was, and look, you know, it, uh uh, ceilings being shattered, you know, as it were. So glass, glass ceilings being shattered. So yeah. Um, now I expect for it to happen all the time, but at least I know it's not me. So that's good. <laughs> yes, exactly. We just wanted to clear up any misconceptions about Lucian, you know, no, no women, female Uber drivers picking up Lucian. Richard, I was so tired that when you just said that, that it may have taken me about 30 minutes to guess what you were talking about. I was like, what do you mean? We just talked about Issa. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, oh, Sorry, I should, yeah. no, I should no, no, do it's more. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know what? I, I actually apologize because I texted you at like 3 a.m. your time and I was like, had a female Uber driver. It's like if your bringer was on, you probably read that and we're like, oh, now I'm awake for this. <laughs> you know, I'm really glad he shared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good job, Lucian. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> okay. My, my one smiley big thing. Face. Yeah. Smiley <laughs> face. Thumbs up. Um, my one big thing, um, pretty short one here. It is getting late. Traffic is still heavy. Um, is the FII. It's coming up. It's in its seventh edition now. Um, and it has a brand new slogan, which it actually rolled out earlier this year. I kind of missed it as it came out, but the new slogan is called the new compass. Uh, of course, the FII was first started in October 2017, um, and actually the theme of that year was the big shift. Um, and so, you know, they do these large um, sort of grand, big sweeping themes, and there really is no way that you can possibly capture what is happening at the FII with just one phrase, but it's good they try. Um, it really is the flagship private sector event for the kingdom. One that's already now become sort of a global brand. I guess you could now, I mean, they've always called it Davos in the desert, but you can put it on that level now because of the quality of speakers and participants they get. Um, and in recent years, it's, uh, and especially last year, it, it got bigger and bigger and bigger. It truly was massive and it swelled, frankly, to an impressive sight to be seen. It was no longer a conference. It was like, uh, you know, uh, 
a mega event, almost like a huge music festival without the music, although there was music. Uh, it's an indescribable sort of event. And it's now become Saudi Arabia's flagship event. Um, you had incredible speakers last year, panels from the public and private sector. You always have that. The setting of a course is the Ritz, and that's an attraction in and of itself. You have so much going on. You honestly can't even like appreciate it because it's just it's it's only a few days. It's so big. There are so many people. People. There are different uh, panels and discussions going on at the same time, big and small. You'll have little breakouts going on. So it's like you kind of just wander around and are like, "This is incredible," um, you know. But at the same time, there's a criticism that it's a little bit overwhelming. That it's trying to be so much that it's hard to really find the sweet spot, depending on what industry you're in, of course. Um, you know, just imagine the biggest conference in the world, but done with absolutely no expense spared or every detail totally dialed in. And I mentioned that because this year it appears that it's no longer quite as based on invitation only, but now it appears to be shifting to membership only. Uh, before you had to be invited by the PIF, the Ministry of Investment or event organizers. Now it looks like you can get in without an invitation, but you need um, to join the FII Institute. And I think um, that is running about $10,000 a, a year startups. for the FII membership. Yeah, for an individual. And then that gets you in as a business and then subsequent people from your same business um, you know, have their price go down, but it's still like eight or $7,000 for the next person. So, you know, uh, like there, there's been, there are, be, there are people here that are saying, well, that's like really expensive, you know, for one event. The reality is it's not really one event. And we're, this is, I guess my one big thing. And the point of it is that this is an event that is shifting into being a true institution. It already has done that. They actually have like a VC fund and they make investments from the fund. They have, you know, ongoing events throughout the world. They have conversations going on on LinkedIn and social media. They have little individual FII events uh, in different countries around the world with different themes. I mean, they did something in Miami not too long ago. Um, but, you know, just just. FII, the star of the show is Saudi Arabia. It's the new Saudi Arabia, the Saudi Arabia that has changed and you have to see it to believe it, Saudi Arabia. It's like, it's just really encapsulates everything going on here right now, which is just change and modernization and trying not to just fit in with the rest of the world, but lead the rest of the world. And, you know, if there's a, a Academy Award for the best supporting actor, Richard, it's the PIF. I mean, you see the PIF yeah. wherever you go in that event. And, and we're going to get to it in a second with uh, Dr. Robert Mogulnicki, who's wonderful. But you can just see the PIF's importance to the Saudi economy and see it as an emblem of Saudi Arabia's economic aspirations. It's in full display. You have the Saudi coffee company is like the coffee stand for you to get coffee at in the show. And you have, you know, dates and all the PIF companies are represented. Of course, other companies are represented in terms of like booths and everything. But you know, it's it's just like it's a purely um, experience event. And so it'll be interesting to see what happens with limited, uh, you know, invitations. You know, if I don't even know if it's true that there will be fewer people there this year. Um, you know, it's just going to be interesting to see how it shakes out. Um, I am registered to go. I uh, hope to go. <laughs> It's not confirmed yet, but uh, I'm, I'm registered. So I, 
I hope to see it. I hope to see what happens because it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if it got smaller. It got, I don't want to say more exclusive, but it got more focused and, you know, became less of how many people can we get in here? How many investors can we get in here to, you know, what kind of investors and what kind of thought leaders and plus Lucian, what's he doing here? You know, but, but I mean, like it just would be interesting <laughs> to see where they go with this thing because it did go in one direction, bigger, bigger, bigger. And it was cool to see it at its biggest. And, you know, I don't know what's going to happen next, but it really, um, congratulations to the organizers because I can only imagine that being just the most stressful and difficult job. If you're doing event man management to run something like this, Richard Attias, obviously the best in the business. Um, they are, I think, have PIF as an investor, but they're just so professional. And that's why the event is professional. So hats off to them. Hope to see some listeners and viewers in Riyadh uh, for the for the FII this year. That's a good one. And it's it's nice to do it in advance so people can start anticipating. Just so, and by mm -hmm. the way, and the Richard RA Associates, Richard Atias Associates, they are amazing. And they run a lot of things out there. Um, just for our... I, I looked it up when you mentioned it because I think it's interesting and it will be telling. So for individuals, it's 15K. This is a membership. Mm -hmm. So as you said, now you don't get invited. Some people will be invited by membership, but you can get in if you buy a membership. So for individuals, 15K. For corporations, 15 a year. So 15 for the first team member, 12K for every additional member. And then for startups, uh, 10K. There's mm -hmm. not a scrabbling uh, you know, scrabbling, uh, you know, digital media, plucky, you know, plucky organization level, you know, where we would fit in, you know, for maybe $500. So they don't have that. So we won't be getting a membership, but I do think it's interesting. I, and, and I think it, I like the timing of doing it. So you said this is the seventh and it's a testament to just getting started. You know, when it first started, you know, when they first initiated, you know, launched this, El Davos in the desert, um, you know, somebody that was sort of said, you know, not necessarily complimentary. I mean, it was sort of said, we'll see what happens, but it's become quite the institution. You know, it does an annual report, just like you said, it has meetings throughout the year. It has commentary throughout the year, very much like the World Economic Forum. And it's established a gravity of its own. And it will be really interesting to see how many people show up because that's your litmus test. These people are willing to pay to be in the room. And that is really the ultimate, you know, uh, measurement of, of the work you're doing and how people value the work you're doing. It, it, it'll be really interesting. And I, I, you know, you've always said that it's a big sort of, you know, festive, you know, uh, you know, huge glitz atmosphere, it, it, you know, if it's a smaller one, it might even be more effective. You don't even need to do all of the like extra bells and whistles. It's at the Ritz and it's at the King Abdulaziz International Conference Center. I think it's called, it's like right next to the Ritz and it looks just like the Ritz. Yeah. It's like, you don't even need to gussy that place up. It looks so cool. It's unbelievable to see. So it's like, but they still do. And it's still, it's still amazing. Um, and yeah, so I will report back on how it is and if there are indeed fewer people. It was weird. I had a lot of friends that came from like I knew from college. I saw there like they, you know, a couple of them live in Europe and are doing investments and they came. I was like, what are you what are you doing here? You know, they're like, well, we had to see it, you know, <laughs> investment opportunities and everything. It was also right last year was right around the collapse of FTX was essentially happening 
either the week of or the week after. And I sort of remember there being a lot of people interested in crypto there. Um, I, I remember getting a lot of DMs on the like FII app about like crypto, <laughs> um, which was which is cool, I guess. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, you know, I, I just completely agree. And, and, and just like, one more point, I think like you have events like this and that's a lot of money, 10,000 bucks. But if you're going to pay to be in the room and yep. it's worth it, then it's worth every penny. And, you know, Richard, you and I have uh, organized major events before. I We charged, I remember, like a little bit, like a nominal fee. These were, this was way back in the day, um, you know, but but it wasn't as much about that. It was a little bit about just making it like, you know, just adding a little formality to it. But the right executives would pay you know, multiple on yeah. this to be in the room with other people. So, um, right. you know, and, and it happens all the time in academia and other and other spaices. So, yeah, um, uh, we'll, we'll see what it's like That's this year. One. But they don't they don't have a by the way, I just want to note they don't have a schedule released yet or a um, syllabus or, the, you know, agenda or whatever. They will have it soon. Right. Um, and and, you know, you can follow along if you don't want to shake loose the coin. You can follow along on the Internet. They post everything. Everything's digital. You can get the app like you can. It's like you're getting all the information. So, yeah, I mean, congrats to the organizers and congrats to the PIF and and the FII, which has actually now become a really you know established institution. So, um, yeah, see you folks there that are going to be there. I know Amjad Ahmed was said that he was going to be there. So um, should be should be good. So anyway, speaking of It'll the PIF, be, let's get to our conversation with Dr. Robert Mogulnike. We like to keep our themes here on the 966. So um, this is a good one, Richard. It's, it's great. I think everyone will enjoy it. Enjoy. We're speaking now with Dr. Robert Mogulnicki, Senior Resident Scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and Professorial Lecturer at George Washington University. Robert is also a very go-to quote for reporters looking for expert insight on stories about virtually anything related to the Gulf states and the political economy of the Middle East region, including the BBC, New York Times, CNN. The list could go on for the entire show, Richard. He's a columnist and contributor yes. for major media outlets as well. Robert, welcome back onto The 966. Always a pleasure and nice to see you again. Great. I'm happy to be back. Robert, yes, everything Lucian said, and we were laughing beforehand, your topical expertise and also as we were talking about your ease of engagement we always love these conversations we we could have you on every other month or every month basically because of what we're interested in you know your expertise in political economy it's it's just spot on today you know we reached out to you and said hey can can we talk about the public investment fund uh pif and i know it will expand beyond that but We'll we'll start with that, and that's simply because it, became, it plays such an enormous role in everything Saudi Arabia is trying to do externally, internally. Uh, it's just, and I, actually, let me just take one of your quotes. And as Lucian said, you're quoted in a lot of places. This was an Economist this summer. Uh, you referred to the PIF as screaming onto the scene with an quote everything everywhere all at once investment approach unquote, which I think is an apt description. Can you uh, elaborate on this a little bit? And we'll get going. We'll go wherever this takes us. Sure. Well, I will, you know, doing my um, good due diligence here, I'll refer to uh, what the Public Investment Fund says about its own activities in its uh, annual uh, report. The most recent comprehensive one is from 2022. 
And if you look at the kind of the, the fund's own reflection of its activities over the history of the fund, it starts in the 70s. And then the next uh, link or the next um, marker for activity really starts in 2014 when there was a tweak to, uh, to I guess, how the fund was managed and um, and how it was going to be oriented uh, moving forward. And then 2015, 16, 17, the next few years, uh, it really accelerated tremendously. And that's, I guess, in a nutshell, if you look at that, the, the timeline um, that others have put together too, but even the PIF's own timeline, you can see there's this long period where it acted in a, as a, in a much different manner, kind of sleepier. You could, you could refer to it as sleepier or cautious, it really a conglomerate of, of, of government holdings. But then uh, all of that changed uh, a few years ago. And that's why I said it really came screaming onto the scene over the last few years. Um, the everything everywhere all at once um, was my sad attempt to tap into the kind of, uh, you know, uh, pop culture. But, but I, yeah, <laughs> I actually didn't. I have not yet watched that movie, but I still think that the title um, from what I know about it and what I read about it, the title did a good job describing how we have seen the PIF's investment approach unfold, in particular over the past couple of years. Um, and you know, I, I, I guess I'd say if you try to whittle down these investments, it's really hard to say, oh, you know, this is, this is exactly what the fund is focused on. There's so many different domains. There's so many different industries, so many sectors, so many different ways in which the fund is deploying capital. Um, many, many of these approaches uh, draw some criticism. There's criticism that that comes from that. Others um, attract a certain degree of buzz and interest and intrigue. Um, but when you put it all together, uh, it's a pretty impressive collection of activities that this uh, that this entity has managed to to engage itself in. And uh, I expect that's what we'll be talking about for the rest of the episode today. Well, it is, and the range and the extent. I mean, just in recent months. You know, it's taken a, you know, it, it obviously we, everyone's familiar with its, its, uh, approach to it with live golf and the golfing industry and football. Um, these are sort of top of the fold, you know, very trendy conversations at the same time. I mean, just recently they, they, they invested $3.6 billion in an, in an aircraft leasing business. They've invested $2.5 billion in, in Vail Minerals, a Brazilian uh, mining firm. Um, they say sort of run independently, and this is apart from other investments, they have uh, five giga projects. I mean, that are, you know, PIF, including Neom and Roshan and Duraya and, and Kadia. And, uh, and and the Red Sea development, all these things are, are these are specifically PIF giga investments. And of course, they're they're throughout the, the economy in many, many ways. You know, they've invested in, took a $1.3 billion total investment in four Saudi-based contracting firms to help boost that sector. Um, and But it is interesting, as you said, traditionally, you know, up until 2015, it was sort of operated as a traditional sovereign wealth fund um uh and now it's revamped its style is there any in your in your experiences are there other 
are there measurables? Are there compar- comparables? Are there other SWFs that are doing the same sort of thing across so many different areas of interest? I, it, it's hard to pinpoint a, a comparable fund in terms of if you're looking for the same size, the same heft, um, moving its, you know, its, its capital weight, uh, so to speak, around in the exact same way. But if I had to put my finger on the closest example in the region, I'd actually look at ADQ in the uh, in in the UAE. Really, I like to think about the PIS activities as in somewhat encapsulating what a number of different funds in Abu Dhabi can do. As Abu Dhabi has a number of different uh, sovereign wealth funds at its disposal. Um, you've got Adia, you have Mubadala, which are a little bit more, I guess you could say, uh, more follow a more traditional investment approach. Um, some of the, the larger fund, Adia is a bit more cautious um, in, in, it, in the way that it deploys capital. Mubadala is, has a slightly different approach. Uh, but ADQ uh, being the smaller of the three, so not at having as much weight as the other two funds in the in in Abu Dhabi or uh, as the PIF, nevertheless acts um, uh, deploys capital in a way that that there are a lot of similarities with uh, with the PIF. A lot of the investment activity is oriented toward the domestic economy, um, toward the UAE's domestic economy, and uh, and that's similar to some to, to many of the trends that we see in the PIF. A lot of that has to do with the the initial genesis of these funds, just like the PIF. Um, I understand that ADQ also is, had really began as a more or less a government um, holdings company, a conglomerate. That's when you started hearing about ADQ. That's in its earlier forms. That's really the way it was described. Now we're starting to hear a, a, about it more in the terms of a fund and a sovereign wealth fund. There's a number of different variations. Even even the notion of a sovereign wealth fund these days um, is starting to be questioned. And a lot of people are starting to say, well, how do we define the sovereign wealth fund? Because these funds like the PIF, ADQ, they're not acting in the way that traditional sovereign wealth funds, your Kuwait investment authorities, for example, um, traditionally have, have behaved. And how do we define funds that do have more uh, an increasingly domestic focus? Uh, that's a that's a good question, not one that I don't think it's one we can solve here today. But we could pick it apart a little bit. But 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 just without going on too much, ADQ is is an interesting example, and I and I, I think it's there are a lot of parallels you can find between those two entities. It, it, that's a, that's interesting, and that uh, reflects your depth of understanding. If you look at you know metrics of sovereign wealth funds, where they invest. The largest in the in the in the globe, the Norway sovereign wealth fund, one hundred percent international. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the top two that invest domestically are ADQ at eighty nine percent of its assets domestic invested domestically, and number two, just as you say, PIF, yeah, seventy nine percent invested domestically. And I think this is this is one of the things I wanted to get to because. If you're just a layman and you 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 read the headlines and and everything Saudi Arabia does is controversial, of course, and and you know uh, it gets attention. It would appear that they're out buying up the world, mm-hmm. when in fact, as you point out, it, the the lion's share, the significant majority, is invested domestically. Yeah, you know, I think the um, one explanation for that is if you're looking at the assets under management. Um, 
much many of the assets under management in these funds are domestic holdings. I mean, are state-owned companies or shares of state-owned um, entities or otherwise. So, I mean, I guess uh, to 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 I mean to explain this at the on a very foundational level, the assets that they have at their disposal, there is a hef- a hefty chunk of domestic assets anyway. So, kind of. Um, the way in which the the sovereign wealth funds like the public investment fund are leveraging these assets in many cases are going to be you know domestic uh, domestically oriented activities that's one there of course is the international investment component and I, you know I, I guess the reality is yes a lot of these investments are very high profile a lot of the pif's recent investments in particular have been very high profile have been very splashy have been uh, some might even say aggressive in pushing into new domains that um that many international observers and investors thought uh, the saudis would not be able to effectively uh, elbow into like uh, like golf the global global golf world um, but they they have gone about that. And, um, you know, I, I I think that to some degree, whether you agree or not with um, with these investment with these investment approaches, I think you do have to give some credit where credit is due um, for the way in which the sovereign wealth fund went about cornering a particular market, whether it's golf and, and how they went about strategically facilitating that investment. Um, but uh, but yes, this is uh, this at the end of the day, this is this is really an interesting breakdown. And we just don't hear as much about what the public investment fund is doing domestically. Those of us who are really, uh, really in touch uh, with uh, with these trends, we know that there is a lot of activity. The PIF is behind a lot of domestic development activities, um, but that's not always what makes the headlines. Uh, yes, and just to, just to add to that, the live observation in terms of that has been strategically very potentially very successful. I mean, they did they announced live launched live in October 2021, and by the summer of 2023, we're you know talking uh, a financial you know joint financial enterprise with the PGA. They, the, the extraordinary things happened extraordinarily quickly in that case. Mm-hmm. The the thing that is fascinating, I think, to both Lucian and I, because PIF is everywhere all the time for us when we talk about Saudi Arabia and it, it yeah. you know, it could be domestic. It could be any, any sector um, is it feels like it's creating a new model mm-hmm. and it's, it's got, you know, from, from 2018 to 2022, it, it, it achieved an 8% return. It wants to pump that up. So it's got to be a little more aggressive internationally in investments. It invested, you know, um, you know, established 25 companies just in the last year alone. Yeah, 2022, 25 new companies, PIF companies, you know, invested close to $40 billion in the Saudi economy. It's doing uh, multiple things at once while saying, all right, you know, by 2030, we want to be a $2 trillion vehicle. Um, And, you know, at 8%, it's not going to get there. No, I think it needs... I think you'd need closer to fourteen percent from some right. of the for some of the analyses that I looked at. Fourteen percent year on year to get to that two trillion dollar figure. That would be tough just on on pure returns alone. But I don't yeah. think I don't think that that is. I don't think that there's a genuine expectation that those types of returns are going to happen year on year to get to that two trillion dollar mark. And and we at the nine six six are very careful not to throw these these goals out and say you know they need to be met. They're really just 
just uh, directions in which you head. Mm-hmm. Uh, the larger point is, is can it, can, can an entity do all these things at once effectively? Uh, you know, are we about to see? Well, yeah, we're in the process of seeing, and I, I, the jury's still out on a lot of these initiatives. As you said, I mean, close to two or two dozen, or maybe more than two dozen companies established just last year. Um, the we're not going to know. Um, we're not going to know what companies are, are, you know, are headed in a, in a more promising direction. What companies might kind of quietly uh, move into other domains or merge with other entities. I expect some of that to happen. You know, the way that I look at the the future trajectory of the PIF and its investments and this strategy of kind of everything everywhere all at once um, does bear some kind of reflection or some similarities to the broader Vision 2030 uh, agenda in, in my mind. And my best guess is that the strategy here is not to accomplish everything. That the goal, there's a genuine, I mean, there's a recognition that everything cannot be done and every target cannot be met. But if we are ambitious enough and we're moving fast enough in a number of different directions, so that if a couple of those avenues pan out as well or better than than expected, the end result, the net result, is going to be um, be a very positive one. And if you're moving, if you're placing so many chips in so many different uh, on so many different tables, um, I think some of those some of those bets are going to are going to um, are going to pay out. Um, and then it will also the success in those domains will perhaps you know obscure or make up for some of the expected areas where where progress you know where the targets have not been met and progress has been more limited than than hoped. Um, I think that's the 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 strategy there is you know aim really uh, you know aim quite far ahead and and hope uh, that where you end up is that you're pretty happy with and satisfied. I think that's a critical just just and 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 then we, and we'll 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 turn to your question, Lucian. I just but I just think and and just for the, for our listeners, but whomever is looking at Saudi Arabia, I think that's a critical point you make, Robert, because. Um, Vision 20, PIF is the key instrument of Vision 2030. Yes. Obviously, I think Mohammed bin Salman is a key instrument of Vision 2030, ultimately. But, but you know, what PIF does is way beyond investment numbers or rates of return or this sort of thing. The, the, in, in my mind, PIF is, is sort of the lead champion of which sectors are going to be prioritize and they've prioritized 13 sectors so so one is tr- strategy two is is they are the they are the watchdog they're like sort of the, the, the gatekeeper the metrics this is how you know it, so it's 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 an urgency thing we want you to move along quickly and we want you to meet these metrics so we have the strategy and we these are the key performance indicators you have to hit and then third um, I, I believe, and it's been our experience in talking with guests that are in various sectors, they bring along a best practices expectation. They they sort of up the game for every sector and saying, this is how we're going to do it, and this is how it's going to be done to international standards. 
So you get strategy, you get, you know, um, uh, tracking and, and metrics and also means urgency, push along, and then you have best practices. So none of these things really have anything to do with, with, with returns or anything, but it has everything to do with how business takes place in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. If you look at the 2022 annual report, uh, 2022 was a tough year for investors, um, especially sovereign wealth funds. A lot of sovereign wealth funds, uh, you know, uh, lost money in 2022, as did the as did the PIF. But if you look at the way that the PIF officials are talking about this, uh, talking about the year, um, they're looking at all of the other activities that happened, the companies that they created, the initiatives that they pushed forward. Um, it's a very positive, upbeat note. And I, I don't just think that that comes down to kind of uh, marketing and uh, in trying to display it. Trying to create a kind of um, you it's know inaccurate picture, so spin on on the yeah. year. It's, it's what you said, Richard. It's that the calculations, the underlying calculations behind this fund, are not just um, uh, return on investment. That's an important part of it. But but actually, if you're looking at the 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 assets under management and the in in the investment capital that the that the fund has at its disposal, the 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 PIF is very clear that returns on investments is only one of about four. There's um, there's capital injections from the government, there's asset transfers from the government, um, and I guess loans and other kind of uh, debt uh, instruments and. In that respect, even if the returns on investment were not great in 2022, Saudi Arabia had a phenomenal year in uh, in 2022. Uh, at least the, the government. Um, so you could look at the other the other ways in which the fund can tap into some of that investment capital from uh, from from the government and say, well, actually, yeah, they they probably felt quite confident, even though the you know the baseline figure on that return on investment for that year wasn't exactly where it wanted to be. Yeah, Robert, you mentioned a point uh, sort of along these lines in terms of how the PIF can step in, create these sectors or invest in sectors and rejuvenate them, and then how they can do that without crowding out private business, crowding out any potential investors into those same sectors. You know, who wants to compete with the PIF and its massive war chest? How, in your view and, and from where you sit, can can you sort of talk about how it's managing that balance, you know, to create local content and to create other players, you know, without running them out of the shell. Yes. So I, uh, in one of the past annual annual reports, I believe it was the 2021 annual report because I couldn't find the exact breakdown in, in the 2022, but I might've overlooked it. The 13 strategic sectors that the PIF is involved in were listed, but they're more interesting than that, that's just a list of 13 sectors and it covers really the whole um, the whole spectrum of, of an economy. But it listed where the assets of the fund or in the portfolio were deployed in, within those different uh, strategic sectors. And what I found was really interesting, what I found is even though there were 13 strategic sectors, most of them really only accounted for low single digits of where the assets under management were, were allocated. There were three uh, different strategic sectors that consumed at least this, and and these figures uh, shouldn't be taken uh, as entirely up to date and accurate because they are from a year or two ago. Um, but real estate, telecoms, and kind of uh, telecoms, and I forget how the broader kind of telecoms um, sectoral 
grouping is is described in the report, but telecoms and then uh, and then one other area, perhaps kind of uh, renewables, um, um, energy and renewables. Those three were accounted for the largest in big chunks, maybe uh, around 20 or 25 percent of, of where um, the portfolio was allocated. Then you had um, minerals and uh, mining and minerals being another big one. And that's, um, as we know from the news over the past few months and the past year or so, has really exploded as an area of interest that the kind of broader Saudi government is interested in, but in particular, the PIF has made some investments in, into that space. Uh, and then I think utilities was another one. But but the rest of that, uh, those 13 strategic sectors were quite small. And again, and, and so to your point, the PIF is um, has grown tremendously in terms of the personnel and the fund. I think it's up close to 2,000 people, probably more now. Um, but it's still limited as you know in terms of um it has limited capacity saudi arabia's economy is massive countries massive economy they're huge you know the the the, the ag- developmental agenda is uh insane uh insane you know i, I, I shouldn't say insane because insane has a negative connotation but it's extremely ambitious we could say insanely ambitious yeah um so it would be it would be uh it 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 doesn't make sense to put that entire responsibility um, on the shoulders of the PIF and and make the PIF the main conduit for every single one of these sectors. I think there will come a point. Um, there will come a point where there has to be a kind of clear designation. Okay, we are involved in a number of different sectors of this economy, but really we have priorities, and here are the priorities. I think that is in there. That information is in there. Um, but if you actually break it apart, you say, oh, well, there's actually an opportunity where, yes, the fund's looking for strategic investments in these sectors, but they're not overwhelmingly involved in these sectors. This is an area where there's more room for others to come in. I will just end end this this response by saying that I, I had a, a long chat with a reporter about, about the PIF, and he asked me, what do you, you know, how do we assess progress? And in the progress, specifically to your question, Lucian, about the PIF um, promoting investments in these different sectors, growing nascent sectors in in, um, in Saudi Arabia. And I said, I think you have to look at it at this stage. You have to assess progress or lack thereof on the basis of whether the PIF has been in, in a, an effective spotlight on opportunities within Saudi Arabia. And then uh, kind of as a second course of action, the degree to which the PIF has facilitated uh, investments uh, in whether those are local investments, regional or international investments um, into those opportunities. Of course, you can look at the international investments that PIF is, is engaged in. But really, for me, the, the big marker of success um, thus far has been the PIF's ability to, to highlight those opportunities within the kingdom. Um, I don't think that that marker of success or that um, that mode of assessment will continue to be um, will continue to be effective, say, five years down the line when we get to 2030. But right now, I'd say I, I'd feel pretty confident saying that's how I would assess whether the PIF has been effective or not up to date. Is it, would it be fair to say, Robert, that the ultimate judgment on on PIF's 
domestic investment involvement is not necessarily how they enter. And we've seen PIF. They often are loss leaders. They look to the other sector and they say, we're going to spend money where others are not simply to, to jumpstart the, the sector. Um, but is it is it going to be less how they get in and where they get in than how they exit? So, for example, in telecom, you know, they have significant investments, but they're also trying to privatize, you know, significant aspects of that sector. Um, you know, will, 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 you know, will a lot of these investments ultimately find IPOs um, or get to capital markets where other people can invest? And, and, and it's in essence, make room, you know, create value, move the sector along, and then move out of it. The short answer to your question is yes. The, the easy part is getting in. The harder part is getting out, is making a, a successful exit that, um, that leaves the economy in a better place um, than, than when the PI entered that market, tried to grow a new industry or created a company and, and, and nurtured that company. To the point where the PIF would, you know, the PIF's involvement is no longer needed. And the PIF could move uh, and, and focus on another kind of strategic sector of the economy or uh, create a new a, a new growth area. So, yeah, in short, it's it's uh, if you look at it, it's it's all about how the PIF exits, not necessarily how it how it um, how it enters. Um, you mentioned, and I don't want to step on anything, Lucian. If you had a question. Uh, you mentioned what I think is a very important point because if if you're around Riyadh and Lucian's in you know spends a lot of time in the, in the VC sector and is knowledgeable there, but you know PIF is just vacuuming up talent, paying a lot you know very good salaries to bring in talent. Yet it's not it still has probably has bandwidth issues, and it, it, one of the one of the things you wouldn't expect is that in terms of of sovereign wealth funds dividing their assets between internal and external managers. Um, the PIF, you know, is sort of at the top of the charts in terms of, of internal management. Yeah. So still 83% of the assets are managed internally. I mean, the only one that is more is the Nor Norway's sovereign wealth fund. And you have like, like KIA, for example, the Kuwait investment authority is, is that's 97% external. Qatar is at 75%. So it, it is still very much an in, internal shop in terms of managing its assets. Mm -hmm. and, and and I guess by definition, as you said, it's only 2,000. There's some limitations on what can be done. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's, it's, there, there have been concerns. I mean, there are a lot of concerns associated with the sovereign wealth, wealth fund that has grown in, pro, uh, you know, in, in essentially in size, but also the prominence of the sovereign wealth fund. It's kind of the sprawl, the institutional sprawl through uh, throughout the economy. Uh, you hear, you know, any 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 number of criticisms, uh, criticisms about you know, taking the talent. The private sector can't find. You want private sector companies to grow, but if the, you know the best, uh, some of the best and sharpest minds who would otherwise be moving to you know relatively high skilled. Uh, well-paying private sector jobs are, are are finding even better opportunities within sovereign wealth fund. Uh, why would they? Why, why wouldn't they opt to take uh, those opportunities? Um, yeah, casting too large a shadow over the private sector. All of these concerns are there. I think many of them are warranted. Uh, this is just part of the growing pains for uh, for a country uh, and some of its most important government-related entities. Um, to to sort out, and I, I, 
I would say it's it's a good, I mean, in some respects, it's a good problem to have, uh, but it's definitely one that needs to be sorted out because if you're trying to, uh, again, you, there's a lot of work to be done. And the, the public investment fund is not the right tool for every job, even if it does have an impressive track record, even if it does generate interest from investors who really should be going to talk to other to to other outfits in Saudi Arabia. There are plenty of other ministries, Ministry of Investment. There are plenty of other funds um, that might in in in, in other government uh, entities that might be much more effective conduits for a particular uh, investor. Um, we do see a lot of international investors saying, "I want to. I, I'd like to speak to the PIF. I, do you have a direct line to the PIF? PIF these types of things." The PIF isn't necessarily the best tool for, or the only tool for every job. And one of one of the things I think we'll start to see is kind of a clearer division of labor within Saudi Arabia and a more effective kind of messaging campaign um, to for different entities to also reach out um, and and try to be more effective conduits uh, in in areas where the PIF um, might not be able or willing to to expand some of that that bandwidth. Yeah, and you can kind of see that in the creation of other funds that have ha- either happened in the last few years or are happening now. There was one of cows that Richard and I discussed a, a few weeks ago. Right. Um, you know, the mm-hmm. SIDF and some some of these like Munshaat and some of these like funds that are, you know, a little bit more efficient at doing exactly what they do, or is what we just talked about. The PIF sort of has this like you know thirteen sector mandate, which is actually bigger than that. It kind of leads into my next question. I think the big thing we don't really know is sort of the value that could be created by these giga projects that they're building. I mean, how quickly will they be done? How much? How many jobs will they create? How much of a return will the PIF get on investment? Some of the figures we've seen for that, you know, $50 billion a year for the new Muka'ab, we're not really sure how much that's going to cost. Can you talk a little bit about like the giga projects and their role in the total PIF portfolio? And, and you know, just, I guess, talk a little bit about like how you see that rolling out over the next seven years as we go to Vision 2030. As I understand it, the um, investments on giga projects currently um, currently consume a relatively small percentage of the PIF's total portfolio. But I think that that the the current reality overlooks a big risk that the expenditure obligations on giga projects uh, could really spiral, I hesitate to say out of control, but could get uh, very large very quickly in the absence of significant, uh, you know, inward investment from from other investors, be they local, regional, or, or international. The reality is, despite the buzz and the media attention of a number of these giga projects, some older like Neom, some newer like the new Muraba and the Mukab and the 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 reality is is uh inward FDI flows into into Saudi Arabia are still pretty low and and they're just they're not at the level yet um and I don't think they'll reach uh, a level in the in the near term where you're going to see a significant um reduction on on the financing obligations that the state is going to um, that that you know on the state for these giga projects. So, yeah, I this is one area where I'd say there's kind of a it's a high risk, high reward, um, uh, high risk, high reward uh, 
elements of 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 the PIF's strategy. Um, that figure at the moment, I, I I refer back to I think off the top of my head the 2022 um, annual report, maybe around five percent of assets under management. It doesn't look very large, but if you look through a number of different documents, there are uh, there are concerns that those that those kind of entanglements um, in, in in the Giga projects will will ultimately become much more expensive than envisioned. Yeah, I think that's right. According to a recent Reuters rundown of SWFs, five percent is earmarked for Giga projects. Um, yeah. And it is interesting, and your point is 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 one hundred percent valid. You know, you can't you can't sort of stop forty percent of the way in. No, uh, and it, you might you know the cost as you as you point out could skyrocket. It, well, yeah, I think that just the reality is at least over the near and medium term, the government's going to be on the hook. They understand that, um, and they understand that their government involvement state financing is is going to be required to 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 push to get these to get these really what were concepts many of them now have moved into implementation and construction stage and then the um early uh you know the early phases of development the government's going to need, need to be the main player there no but everyone expects that but the question is just when will that ratio change in terms of the kind of the lift that the government has to um, has to put forward and then uh, where investors will come in. The other question is um, when it comes to assets under management, there's a, a big focus on these giga projects as being really important uh, components of the total kind of assets under management for these funds. But yeah, I also struggle to see, you know, what, what the strategy there is as well in terms of, okay, even if there's a share offering for one of these giga projects, um, if you just, if 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 you can convince one or two different investors to to come in, maybe you'll get on paper a valuation of that uh, of a particular giga project, whether it's Neom, whether it's Red Sea uh, Global, one or or any other um, you know giga project in the PIS portfolio. But if you're talking about a, a relatively small um, uh, share offering with not a lot of international demand, maybe one or two different investors. Um, will that really make a big difference uh, beyond just the kind of paper valuation of these projects? I think, you know, I, I don't think so. So um, a lot of the the scenarios that you read about, we say, oh, okay, getting to the $2 trillion uh, figure will, will involve a share offering for one of these giga projects and, will, you know, boost the valuation, which is very low to begin with, or was uh, one real that is what the PIF paid the government for, for, for some of the real estate for these projects. Um, but, but I think th that, you know, the, the trained observers and the kind of, uh, you know, the, the investors who are looking at those types of, those types of processes will say, well, you know, that's, that's not really kind of genuine wealth creation. Um, so, I guess it's more of a challenge that that much more on that front has to be done. I think the reality is, is a, there's a bigger spotlight on Saudi Arabia right now. Um, the international investment community knows what's going on there and knows what the government has in the works. So um, they've got to they've, they've really going to be the pressure is going to be on to to actually do something very impressive there. Um, and and to bring foreign investors in in a way that is genuine, not necessarily attract one investor for a small share offering and say, oh, actually, well, you know, this project is worth X amount. I don't think that's going to cut it. 
We know the PIF has been ramping up operations abroad in terms of setting up offices. They're doing one in the U.S. and I don't have the name in front of me, but it's not the PIF. It's a slightly it's like Invest USA or something like that. Um, but do you know the status of that? I mean, it was about eight months ago that that was announced. They started hiring some investment bankers and other investment uh, people. Are, are they are they you know are they adding more and more people every day? Are they using that office more to make investments into the U.S. or to examine investments in the U.S. now? I don't know the answer to that. I'd like to meet. I'd like to meet some of these folks. I, I know that the the offices. I mean, if you look at, I always like to see where the international offices are located for for different funds. It does give you an idea of the orientation where the focus is um, of these funds. And I think for the PIF, unless they've created a new one recently, you you do have U.S., London, um, Riyadh, Thank- obviously, and then Hong Kong. Or Singapore, I wasn't sure. Hong Kong, it's either Hong Kong or Singapore. Yeah, I might might be willing to venture uh, venture bet on on Hong Kong, but I'd go with yours. Um, <laughs> e- either way, yeah, I mean that's still you. You still see uh, in, in in the investment uh, in the in the big investments that are announced. You still do see a strong uh, focus on. Um, you know, Western countries in uh, in Europe, uh, the UK, but also also the US. So I would expect that, yeah, the fund, whether if it, it it's labeled a PIF office or or some slightly different incarnation thereof, um, to have a heavy presence in the US, in New York, and potentially on the West Coast as well. Yeah, USSA International was the name of the fund. Just perfectly forgettable <laughs> by design, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, there, you know, the, for better or for worse, there have also been a number of the kind of controversies associated with the kind of broader political um, system in Saudi Arabia um, have also been kind of placed on the PIF. So there may be there may be some incentives there to to create a different, slightly different structure or um, uh, you know, a different entity uh, for slightly different entity subsidiary company for for the U.S. market. Um, just to kind of uh, cut through some of that, um, cut through some of some of that criticism or or noise, so to speak. And it's accompanied by increased uh, Saudi investment in U.S. startups. I mean, last year I think there were 22 investments from Saudi entities. Um, you know, which was a significant leap from the previous year. So they're looking, certainly looking to invest over here and, and have a presence and a profile. They always have traditionally, but I'm talking about these particular the the vehicles we're talking about today. Absolutely, and that's why some of the also some of the reporting that has suggested that countries like Saudi Arabia are kind of turning away from the U.S. Um, and moving into you know aggressively into markets like you know Chinese markets, for example. If you look at actually the investment entities that um, that are leading the charge, as you said, Richard, early on, and I agree with that vision uh, 2030 in, in large part is being driven by the public investment fund. Um, this is a crit, absolutely critical uh, government instrument for for Saudi Arabia, and it's uh, it's very interested in uh, in U.S. assets. And I think that that interest will continue, especially, as you said, startups and uh, technology firms. Both uh, big and big and small, um, America has uh, you know the American economy and a lot of the companies that are um, uh, that are here. Um, there's a, 
good, promising story to tell. Um, everything I'm reading about uh, China at the moment, um, I see red flags. I mean, there's a lot of concern about the Chinese economy. There's a lot of concern about foreign investment in China. And, you know, I, 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 I would be astounded if the PIF, uh, PIF officials were, um, we're overlooking all of the news coming out of, uh, you know, out of out of China and, and China's economy at the moment. So I don't pay too much attention to that kind of broader uh, that broader narrative that um, Saudi Arabia and or important entities like the PIF are turning away from the U.S. You just don't see when you look at the investments they're making, the focus, um, the types of uh, high net worth individuals that they want to attract and the investors they want to attract to the country. Um, that all, I mean, in many respects, that makes me double down and look at the U.S. and, and other European countries even more than um, than we did before. So, Dr. Robert Mogulnicki, senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Just thinking about this, Richard, we could have had this a conversation on 50 different topics and filled the whole hour with absolutely yes. no problem. And he knows the PIF just as well as all of those things. So very impressive, Robert. Thank you so much for your time. We, we really appreciate it as always. Thank you for inviting me back.